And until they start collecting the outcome data, I can't yet show you the proof that it's happened because we're forced right. to stay in the closet. Right. So that said, um, so I mean, if there's one takeaway is if you ever see anybody asking if you're queer on a medical record, be happy about it because that's okay. one of the most powerful sets of questions that can exist to try and help LGBTQI plus health disparities move forward is just asking on intake if we're queer or not. Right. Um, and usually we fought like cats and dogs to get there. So, you know, some people be like, well, why do you, why does it matter kind of thing? And you're like, no, 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 for us, it's really going to help us, you know? Yeah. Science, science, technology, technology, medicine, medicine, health, health. These four things make the world go round. Without them, we couldn't exist. This is the Monday Science Podcast, a weekly show bringing you the latest research and news in science, technology, medicine, and health, answering your questions or finding experts in the field to answer them. Your host is a pharmacist, an award-winning scientist. She leads her own research group and is the founder of King's College London Fight the Fakes, a tad bit on the qualified side. Welcome to Monday Science. Here's your host, Dr. Bahija Raimi Abraham. Hello, welcome back to Monday Science. How are you today? It's always a question that people ask and you're never quite sure if they really want to know the answer. Hmm. Um, but anyway, how are you? I hope you're starting off the day, the hour, the minute, whatever time of day you're listening to this. Um, I hope it started off well. I hope you've had a good day. Um, how am I? I'm good. Yeah, I'm fine. I had a really nice sticky toffee pudding dessert yesterday with um, it was with vanilla ice cream and I went I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I went for um, a catch up with a friend and um, I'd already eaten. I just wanted dessert. And there was a surprise entry for me on the menu for where we were. And um, it was sticky toffee pudding, which is my favorite dessert. Actually, is it my favorite? Well, I also like um, apple crumble. But anyway, sticky toffee pudding. And I asked the waiter because it was it came with vanilla ice cream. But we all know that there are two other options that are really good with sticky toffee pudding. And that is clotted cream um, and or <laughs> uh, custard. So I asked the waiter, oh, is it possible to replace the ice cream with clotted cream? And he just said no in such a strong way that it made me feel that somebody's probably asked him that before. Anyway, I don't know why I'm telling you that story, but that's it's actually because the sticky toffee pudding's on my mind as I'm recording this episode. Anyway, onto the science. Okay, so I've got a really a quirky news update um, about alien abductions. I've always been quite interested. I find the whole concept of aliens walking among us and, and whether, you know, life on other planets, I find that quite interesting. And I went through a phase when I was younger um, where I used to watch a lot of documentaries about um, uh, people who claim to have been abducted by aliens and they, you know, talking about their stories and different people and how they all seem to have um, similar, some sort of similarities, but yet had experienced things at different parts of the world. Um, so some researchers have conducted a study that suggests that lucid dreaming may actually be the reason why a lot of uh, people feel they have had these alien abduction experiences. So lucid dreaming is where people are aware that they're dreaming or the dreamer may also and or the dreamer may also gain some form of control over the dreams, characters, narratives or environment, for example. There are other definitions of defining uh, lucid dreaming, but I'm not going to go into all of that today. And so researchers um, who are at the phase research center which is a private facility in moscow and they exclusively research lucid dreaming i did not know people researched um lucid dreaming but i learned that something something new um and they conducted an experiment with 152 adults who self-identified as lucid dreamers and they instructed them to find or summon aliens or ufos so unidentified 
flying objects um, during a lucid dream. The researchers found that 114 of the participants reported dreaming about having some type of successful interaction with an extraterrestrial. Of those, about 60, 61% described meeting aliens that um, all seem to look like aliens that we commonly see in science fiction novels and films, whereas um, about 20% uh, found that they met aliens that looked like ordinary people. The work has been published in the International Journal of Dream Research. I love the fact that there's people researching this. I might do an episode about lucid dreaming to try and understand the science behind it, if there is any science behind it. Apologies if I'm offending anyone. I'm not trying to. I just don't know much about this area. If there's anybody listening to this who is a lucid dream expert or you know anyone who is a lucid dream expert, please do get them to get in touch or just email me their name, um, info at mondaysciencepodcast.com, put the subject titled lucid dreams, um, or you can just send a message um, on our social media, Instagram at mondayscience and or Twitter at mondayscience underscore. On to our Monday Science Person of the Week, and this goes to Joseph Bentley, um, who is a recent Loughborough University graduate, and he has recently won the James Dyson Award after designing a life-saving device that rapidly stops bleeding from knife wounds. The device is called REACT, um, which stands for Rapid Emergency Actuating Tamponade, and the device aims to reduce blood loss from knife wounds. Um, And this is something he designed as part of his uh, product design and technology degree. So congratulations, uh, Joseph, on your award, but also just it's an amazing initiative. On to today's episode. This is episode 88. And this is actually a recap episode um, with my interview with Scout, who is the executive director of the National LGBT Cancer Network and the principal investigator of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, so that's CDC, funded LGBTQ tobacco-related cancer disparity network. In this episode, we discuss cancer risk, screening, and health disparities in the LGBT community. Well, I am currently the executive director of the National Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender uh, Cancer Network. And I have been working in uh, cancer, I guess, in tobacco and LGBTQ plus health disparity work for, I think, my whole career, which is longer than you might think. Um, so I, I've been like working in the late 90s uh, around national health disparity stuff related to queer folks. And even before that, I was working in civil rights related to um, queer issues. So I, I've got a long history of hopefully, hopefully helping some change come about. And um, certainly speaking up a lot and saying kind of, what about us? What about us? Why aren't we included? Things like that. Oh, that sounds amazing. And um, if you don't mind, just clarify what health disparity could mean, just in case some of our listeners may not understand the term health Yeah, yeah. no, I, I totally understand it. When I first actually thought about going back to school, my mentor was saying, well, you know, you should study LGBT health disparities. And I thought, but I don't understand why would we have them? We're not biologically different than other people. Um, and, and now I realize how naive that was because we, while we realize a certain amount of our health is caused by biology, an actual greater percentage of it is usually caused by behavioral factors, emotional factors, things that can be influenced by your outside world. So um, biology is a piece of the equation, but almost the smaller piece of the equation. And then health disparities are when any, whenever any population has a systematic trend that differs from the general population in their health. You know, we, we'd love to think that sometimes it's better, but usually health disparities are populations that have experienced some type of discrimination. And that's reflected then because like, you know, uh, for example, uh, African-American men are much more likely to die of heart attacks than white men might be. And so that's a health disparity. And that usually whenever we kind of dig down and try and look at why it's the case, we realize discrimination somehow at the core. So um, in that same way, the LGBTQ plus communities, which of course overlap all of the different other populations that also experience disparities as well. Um, we have a pretty, pretty systematic set of health disparities that we experience. And, and so as my you know, mentor was saying, you should research this and you should go back and go to school and get your PhD in it. I, at first I was like, what do you mean? And then I'm like, oh, 
there's a world of interesting information there and, and a world to dig into that, you know, we've only kind of honestly scratched the surface of thus far. Yes, thank you so much for that. And and I think that sort of intersectionality, the complications um, uh, that can sort of occur when you have all these different things that you have to take into account and then just wanting to get equal access to healthcare. It's just such yeah, a challenge. Yeah. And it's a shame that I, my, my latest thing for 2020, it's, it's a shame we still have to deal and talk about this in 2020. <laughs> That's my statement. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I had mentioned that I was working in civil rights work and, and I was uh, the co-chair of the largest LGBTQ civil rights march that's existed in the United States, at least in 1993. And I would say that, uh, you know, we had a recent Supreme Court decision in the United States that helped give us employment protections. But it's really sad to think how many years after 1993, we were, we were putting, you know, our, dream, our wish list of, you know, equality related things and we still haven't gotten so many of them. So that's just thinking progress here is really slow on some of these important issues. Before we get into the main topic, I'm going to ask, I'd like to clarify terms so that the listeners have an understanding of uh, what we're going to talk about. So sounds firstly, great, sounds great. thank you. <laughs> so firstly, could you explain what um, or state what LGBTQI stands for? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, we're talking lesbian, gay, bisexual, and those three things are usually considered sexual orientation. Transgender is considered gender identity. And then Q is often referred to as queer, which is kind of a little bit of an umbrella term. It can mean any one of those things. Uh, sometimes Q also could mean questioning, uh, which is particularly appropriate for youth because we all kind of go through a period of questioning before we figure out, oh wait, we're not what we thought we were taught we were, right? And then I is intersex. And intersex sometimes can be referred to as disorders of sexual development, but that's a, a very distinct phenomena, actually usually either a biological or a genetic phenomena that is something that is uh, kind of very measurable. Those other, those other letters in the acronym, uh, kind of like you can test for diabetes, but you don't have like a dipstick test for mental health. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's something that's much harder, more amorphous to, you know, it doesn't show up as you have mental health and on, you know, when you test your blood uh, in that same way, LGBTQ are things that are more mental, emotional based. And so there's not like a dipstick for it. Right. But I is something that is usually a biologically measurable phenomenon. My next question was going to be, could you specifically explain transgender intersex? But so I well, like to, well, I think maybe transgender, I should still oh, say yeah, a little okay, bit more okay, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously, you know, at birth, most of us and intersex people are sometimes the exception, but most of us are assigned a sex at birth, which is, you know, what they're, they're looking at our genitalia and saying, you know, from your biological manifestation, you are assigned either female or male. And of course, then the issue with intersex is that people who are intersex, uh, just so you know, most of us apparently start out as female and then some of us diverge off to develop male traits and that can be hormones, chromosomes and biological phenomena. Uh, but, but that divergence sometimes doesn't, isn't perfect. And so sometimes people end up with a little bit of a mix. Uh, and that usually means that something isn't fully developed or, and so it's hard for you to exactly tell, uh, would this person fit in box A or box B? And uh, so, but most of us, it's easily determinable by looking at our genitalia. And so we're assigned a sex at birth, but then as we grow into, you know, emotional, psychological, fully realized beings, some of us realize that that didn't fit. And when that doesn't fit, there's a couple different ways we can think about that. One would be either, hey, those two boxes of male and female seem fine, but I'm in the opposite box. Or you can say, hey, those boxes don't seem to represent my reality. So I'm gonna say I'm somewhere outside those boxes. So um, people who would you know, not fit e equally into those boxes might represent themselves as either gender non-conforming is one way to say it. Another way might be non-binary or NB for short. Um, and then people who are substantively different than whatever they were assigned at birth could be, could call themselves transgender. Sometimes transsexuals are people who identify as the exact opposite box, but that can be flexible too. You know, you can call yourself a transsexual without exactly adhering to that. But basically whenever you see someone where their lived experience of their true 
gender, which is how they, you know, represent their experience of masculinity, femininity, and all the combinations thereof in their mind and in their behaviors and their dress and in the world doesn't fit that, that M or F that was given to them at, on their birth certificate. That person is usually, in, they would call themselves some variant of transgender. Non-binary, gender non-conforming, transgender, something like that. The term cis relates to, because you hear the terms like cis woman, cis man, and then you hear trans woman, trans man. So can you just clarify the, what the cis refers to? It's, yeah, it's just the opposite of trans. So if that sex you were assigned at birth still fits you, you're cis. Good to go. No issues. On you go. If it doesn't fit you, like for me, I was assigned female at birth. Right. That's not my experience. So it didn't fit. So I'm trans. And okay. uh, then you can figure out how you identify on that spectrum. I wasn't aware that um, that the LGBTQ community could potentially be at risk of different types of cancer. So what you were explaining sort of earlier on. So could you um, explain what the risks are and highlight any uh, cancers which have like the highest risk in a general sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, in order to tell you the story, let me tell you what's missing from the story and why it's missing. Like as just an example, we have seen a lot of data recently coming out showing how African-Americans, indigenous populations and Latinx people have higher uh, rates of disparities related to COVID, right? That's been really helpful and insightful data to understand how this is affecting our population. But what you don't see is anything related to LGBTQ plus I plus impact related to COVID. Why is that? Because our data are usually not collected. Unfortunately, fundamentally, um, those data are usually derived from hospital records, but when we go in the hospital, we're kind of forced to stay in the closet. Even if we wanted to be able to tell intake that, hello, I'm queer, I'm trans, I'm, you know, gaily, whatever I feel like, you know, uh, we can't because they don't usually ask. And since they don't ask, it, it seems like a small thing, but since they don't, it means we don't have a lot of outcome data like cancer outcome data. So what we do usually have is risk data and a very small amount of outcome data. But, but with risk data, you can usually say basically like you see, you know, you see the Titanic heading for an iceberg, there's going to be a problem. You know what I mean? So you, risk data shows you that we could have problems ahead. Maybe we could turn around the iceberg, but chances are there's going to be an issue here. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, risk data helps show us what's likely to happen. In, you know, in public health, it's called a public health case statement where we anticipate something's going to happen. So that being said, most of what I can tell you is what we have data showing is likely to be the case. And until they start collecting the outcome data, I can't yet show you the proof that it's happened because we're forced right. to stay in the closet. Right. So that said, um, so, I mean, if there's one takeaway is if you ever see anybody asking if you're queer on a medical record, be happy about it, because that's one of the most powerful sets of questions that can exist to try and help LGBTQI plus health disparities move forward is just asking on intake if we're queer or not. Right. Um, and usually we fought like cats and dogs to get there. So, you know, some people be like, well, why do you why does it matter kind of thing? And you're like, no, no, no. For us, it's really going to help us, you know? Yeah. So that said, what we have as um, a huge disparity, the biggest one, actually, people don't realize epidemiologically, it's the number one thing affecting our population. If you think of like LGBTQI health disparities, what comes up in your mind as far as risk factors? I've been trying to think what I think would be a risk factor. No, honestly, and I can't because it's just, it, I don't want mm, to cause a But what do you think just general health, general health risk factors? What are our general health issues? What do you think of those? I mean, what would come up? I would say mental health. Yeah, yeah, that and probably right. HIV too. Yes, yes. Oh, yes. Sorry, yes. Mental, mental. I would say mental health first, and HIV. Yes, yes. I yeah, that. absolutely, absolutely. So, and that's what most people think. But what we don't realize is the number one thing actually taking years off our life is actually smoking. And like, just as an example, um, you know, in the United States, we've got about half a million people who are LGBTQI plus who are HIV positive. And in comparison, we have about 3 million smokers. And smoking pretty consistently kills the people who smoke. You, you realize now that like from a numbers standpoint, it actually, tobacco is our big problem. And we don't realize it, uh, but what's important about this in cancer is it's related to over a third of all cancers. Right. Would, 
just disappear if smoking stopped. So it is a particularly toxic interaction with cancer. And we not only use cigarettes at much higher rates, we also use e-cigarettes at higher rates. We have higher rates of menthol use. It's just across the board. If there's a, like a smoking or a tobacco disparity to be had, you can usually see it clustering in our population. And so when you break apart the LGBTQI, and I suppose taking into account what you're saying, that really there's not enough data um, because of something as quote unquote simple as a form, right? Yeah, because it's, yeah. it's, it's an admin. Why does it always yep. come down to admin? I'm sorry. I I'm know. Amazing. It's the paperwork it that kills us. Yeah. yeah, it always comes down to admin. Oh, actually, I know. You know, something, so so I guess with my next question, I don't know if, if there is an answer for this right now, but if you take apart the L- LGBTQI acronym, do you have any data on any specific cancers that are related, um, for example, to transgender people, or maybe tailoring the question a little bit in your work that you've been looking at with tobacco risk, maybe is, have you noticed any uh, trends perhaps? Right, so right. it's a great question. We do know a couple of things related to this. First of all, there is um, among gay men, trans women, and bi men, there is a big issue related to HPV. And HPV is also correlated with a lot of different cancers, including very specifically anal cancer. And one of the things that people don't understand is that for people who have, you know, uh, think of it as like the male biological bits and pieces, dingles and dongles and stuff like that, that there actually is an anal pap smear that you can do as a test for anal cancer. But have we ever heard of any guys or trans women getting anal pap smears? No, we haven't. Because when we even go to the doctors and talk to them about this, most of the doctors are like, I don't know how to do it. Issue related to anal cancer among, again, gay guys, bi guys, and trans women has been literally labeled an epidemic because it's such a big problem. Doctors don't even know how to screen for it. It's running rampant through the population. It's very related to HPV. And that's not the only cancer. It's also related to HPV as well. And how do you, um, what, what is the pap smear? What, like, is this a case of we need to create increased awareness and then advocacy and education so that there is more training? and you know on how to do the pap smear and if you do know how <laughs> sorry i'm not saying if you do know how it's not to educate people right, so they right, do right, please right, right, but i'm just saying yeah. what, what is it is it a hard you take uh, the popsicle stick stick it in your butt and then you go from there you say no no it's no no I, I have no idea how it's actually done i just do know i think it's something like that but i do know this that we need to make sure the doctors are actually trained not actually doing the pap smear is usually the easier part Getting it read accurately is the challenge and getting the doctors to realize it should happen is the challenge. So yeah. teaching a doctor how to accomplish an anal pap smear is simple, but so the pap- having a doctor realize that they should do an anal pap smear as part of regular testing, particularly if it's a gay, bi man or a trans woman that's showing up to their door is the challenge. And then you know they have to be able to send it somewhere where it can be read accurately. So you can see there's layers of training there that yeah. are right now just missing out in the healthcare system. Well, there, there was, so there's tobacco-related cancers, and then there's HPV-related cancers. And the third big thing, of course, is HIV cancers. And those also have a tendency to cluster on that same population of gay, bi men, and trans women. But you know, if we're talking about like what affects trans folks more, it really it has a tendency to cluster with all the LGBTQ plus impacts. It has a tendency to be related to HPV, HIV or tobacco use. But the other, the fourth kind of silent problem in the room is that it's pretty likely that we will not be getting healthcare as frequently and appropriate cancer screenings as frequently as the rest of the population. You know, one of the things I like to talk about, unfortunately, is that the, the, my partner who's sitting across the room for me now, despite the fact that I run a cancer network, she had to drag me tooth and nail to get a dermatologist screening for a suspicious thing on my back. Wow. And did I want to go find a new dermatologist? Did I want to explain that I was trans? Did I want to figure out, you know, tell everybody I was trans? Have you ever served any trans people? How are you doing? Tra- you know, that sort of stuff. And then stand naked in front of them? Heck no, you know? And I was months and months and months till finally, I think she took me by the scruff of my neck and um, it was cancer. So now multiply that times people who don't happen to be running cancer organizations. Yes. And yes. you can see that going to a specialist to try and get, you know, cancer screenings 
For some of it's the last thing in the world we want to do because we have not had the history of acceptance at the healthcare provider's offices. I mean, oh, thank you for sharing that because, um, and I hope you're okay now. It's fine, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was one of those snip and go cancers, so I'm okay. happy about that. That's good. Um, but, you know, you've just highlighted the challenges that I guess people don't think about. I don't know um, in terms of in America sort of what the screening, what the so, for example, I speak about the UK, what I know. So in the UK, um, you have different at a certain age, you're meant to get a smear test for uh, cis women. Um, and I guess it would be cis women and uh, trans men, potentially, if they haven't had the surgery. Um, and uh, so you get your smear test. And there used to be back in the day, not showing my age, but I suppose, but back in the day, it used to be it used to be if uh the, the if the person had had uh, was a virgin or not so if somebody was a virgin or not they would assume that okay if they've had sex they need to have a smear test if they haven't had sex they don't need to have a smear test I don't really know the basis of that but that's what happened um but we have certain so there's a, a time you'll get a letter from the GP to say okay you need to come and get your smear test and then if the smear test is um uh fine then you just get a recall every two to three years. I think it's three years. Um, for men, I think that in terms of for prostate um, uh, prostate checks, that's only really done, I think, over 40. I think I, I have to double check, but something like over 40 is when they get called to have a prostate check. Prior to that, it's just uh, uh, information about check your testicles check your breast and so forth so is there something similar like that like a national call um for screening of when you should do it yeah yeah actually there isn't um there are medical protocols that you can look up uh but there's not something simple and easy on when you should advise uh trans folks to get their different kinds of screenings and you know remember like you can't um you know, it's, it's a very specific set of surgeries as to whether you still have a cervix or not kind of thing. And gender confirmation survey surgeries may or may not affect that cervix. And in the same way, if you have, if you are a trans man, so it means you're assigned female at birth and you have top surgery, you still actually have breast tissue even after top surgery that's still at risk for breast cancer. And likewise, trans women who are taking hormones also have breast tissue that is also at risk for breast cancer. So there's kind of, it's a little bit of a, a, a patchwork of risks, but there's no simple, easy place for a doctor to uh, go to find that advisement. And that means that too often, and in addition, remember lots of doctors are prodded by their software that this person is this age, they're now you know ready for their blank, right? So it actually points out there was a, a clinic in Canada, a pretty small clinic, but they did a study of their own trans cancer patient population. And they actually found out, I may, I may mislabel these slightly, but the, the import will be the exact same, that the trans clients, patients were 40, 50, and 60% less likely to get, I believe it was breast, cervical, and anal cancer screenings. I may have those reversed order. So maybe it was 40, 50, 60 for like anal, breast, cervical, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Than the general population. And it was really interesting because they thought, okay, we can understand why the trans guys are less likely to get breast and cervical because maybe the, the protocols are not prompting the doctors to do that because they're listed as male under their, you know, uh, health records. But they were also, they're like, why are, why is any trans person getting fewer anal cancer screenings? That's not dependent on the protocol. Right. And I mean, to me, it's obvious. It's because in, in the same way, the, the trans patient doesn't want to go to the provider to get these things done because we have such an aversion. We've had such problems with our providers. Uh, but for them, they're like, huh, it isn't just the protocols. We've got a deeper problem here. And, and again, it's, it's almost interesting when you can look at the problem, unfortunately, when it's happened and then work your way backwards to say, these are the things that need to be fixed in order to get to this point. Um, and, and it's, I always find having these sorts of conversations about health inequalities, um, health disparities, where you're like, it's quote unquote easily solved, but what is right, holding right. us back from getting there? Uh -huh. You know, yeah, that's another 
You have to come back. We'll have to have another chat. <laughs> you know, there, there's some more things we could have done on racism too, but we don't seem to necessarily have completely dug in on, you know, like there's just so many issues that. It's just continuous really. But um, I wanted to talk, so is that with the challenges faced with transgender people, what's the, do you have any insight as to the challenges that would be faced with inter people who are intersex? Yeah, so yeah. It, it's really it's, interesting because the intersex population is, if you imagine that the trans population and the LGB population have a little bit more something that's kind of, uh, it's a phenomena that uh, usually coming out happens around age 12. There's a lot of kind of social grouping that happens as you find someone who's like you, things like that. The intersex population, a lot of the challenges that intersex people deal with uh, the most are actually in early life. Literally as infants, they're often subjected to a series of surgeries, quote unquote, sometimes corrective surgeries in order to make their genitalia conform. And then they do hit another period where they have challenges, usually around adolescence. And sometimes it's, sometimes they've been assigned a, a sex that completely is, is ill aligned with what their, you know, um, biological manifestation is in adolescence, just because of inter, not all the intersex, you know, conditions are very well understood by doctors, but there's not as much of some of that kind of social grouping. And so unfortunately the intersex population is a little less organized and a little less, uh, the advocacy level is a little less mature than it is among some of the other LGBT populations. Um, and honestly, the advocacy level in the B population is also something that's less mature too. The B population is kind of like outsiders on every side. And so we actually have a higher level of health. I'm also bisexual. We have a higher level of health disparities than either one of the other groups, you know, either straight or LG, B always have a higher level of health disparities. So, you know, we have, so the challenge with intersex is that there's been not as much research done. Uh, we understand that there's profound health problems but we're really struggling to mature the field more so that we can get more information about, you know, what are those risks? Do we know that intersex people smoke at higher rates than the general population? The queer smoking, I mean, the LGBT smoking rate has a lot to do with discrimination. So it's pretty likely we see that manifested again in the intersex population, but we have fewer data sets that actually collect robust enough data that we can provide evidence on that. So. Mm -hmm. We've got some real, uh, it, you know, all the challenges we have with data collection for LGBT, like triple them when you get. Just because I, I was going to ask about, um, because we haven't really spoken about non-binary people, but I wasn't aware of the higher disparity. You mentioned that for the B, so bisexual people. Yeah, yeah. How, yeah. Why is that? If you could... well, well, the theory behind it is because, again, we're accepted, we're neither beast nor fowl kind of thing. So <laughs> since we're not accepted from either side, then that just means it's more social isolation and more exclusion. Right. Like, right. interestingly, there's a, um, there's a big study in the United States called the Growing Up Today study that does uh, youth and it does, it, it happens to be a random sample of nurses and then their offspring is the Growing Up Today study. And in that they've done a pretty good job of measuring whether people are straight or lesbian or gay. And interestingly enough, they do it on a spectrum because with youth, of course, it's not like two check boxes. They're kind of exploring or they're kind of, you know, it's on a spectrum, right? And interestingly enough, they show in that study, it's one of the first places we could see clearly that your health is better if you're at either end. So if you're either straight or gay lesbian, your health is better. If you're anywhere in the middle-ish, your health is worse. So you, and, and then of course we see that reflected in uh, adult bisexuals all over the place. The bisexual information, you know, all the health disparities are worse in the bisexual population pretty much. So that's, that's a real challenge. And, you know, you brought up non-binary. There's some, you know, real, we're, we're very excited in general that there's more terms to describe people now because the more someone, especially someone young, can find like a home for themselves and realize they're not alone, even if that home isn't a word that fits them, you know, that's beautiful. And that helps give them strength and a sense of solidarity and less isolation. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So we love that stuff. We love that gender nonconforming and non-binary are emerging as, you know, popular identity labels, but just as a sense of where we might be going. The Williams Institute recently was in, conducted a survey in California with youth. And I believe that it was 26%, if I'm correct, of the 
youth population in California identified as non-binary. 26%. Yeah. Wow. Yes. I know they got some hippies in California, but that's still huge. That's a a lot. (laughs) It makes you wonder where we're going. I mean, as people feel safer, we've always known this. And when it was a really hostile environment, the smallest number of people disclosed being queer because they were the ones who are like, I don't care what happens to me, I have to say it, you know? But there's a bunch of people where they're kind of like, I may not have to say it. I may be fine passing because this seems pretty nasty. You know what I mean? (laughs) And so now that people are safer, more people are saying it. Like there's there's these two big surveys in the United States and I always show, you know, people at the state level. I'm like, look at how many adults said they were queer and then look like it's double the number of youth said they're queer. And I I said, you know, I say I figured, ran the numbers and by the year 2543, I think it is the United States will be majority queer if we keep it up at this rate. But so again, I, I really need to take my vitamins. I, I gotta last a long time here because I want that data come. And, and also, it goes, <laughs> you know, the fact that there was a study there, and it goes back to I'm not saying admin is the root of all evil, but you know, if you have a study that right, has right. the terms that people can say, oh hello phrase or word that I can identify with that's who I am it goes back to that I think that visibility it's always a conversation um when it comes to for people to be able to identify for people to be able to have something or someone to aspire to is that visibility and we see that more as visibility of people but actually visibility in a form you know uh, you know just so you can say oh yeah I identify with that and it's even on another level as well these forms you know there was a big if you think to uh well many years ago um in terms of options if you wanted to show which race you identified with it was just white or black and then it's um, African, so Black African, Black Caribbean, this is especially in the UK. And then like, for example, my family, like my mom's half Nigerian, half Trinidadian. So that's African and Caribbean. What do you do then? Do you tick all the boxes? And then there's me. Okay, granted, I'm only a quarter, but I still identify. I don't identify as being only African or only, you know, I can't even try and claim only West Indian. So I just tick all of them or I tick other. I right. mean, now they know it's me. I'm in like, the it's, other my, black it's my favorite. Box. If it's my favorite quarter, then it's my favorite quarter. Don't argue yeah. with me. I just, yeah. it's just, you know, all these forms, you just maybe just say, what do you, what do you say? Who are you? You know, um, but, but, but then on the flip side of that, it's sort of, I think, at least in terms of what we've talked about today and for the LGBTQI community plus as well, it, it, just having on a form, are you any of these or other, or tell us, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. do you identify with these terms that we know, or can you tell us? Um, it's a real act identify? of grace, you know, it's a real yeah. act of grace to just give someone okay. a space where they don't feel alone. Because, you know, we yeah. know from health that we're, we're actually a little bit more tribal animals than we might realize. You know, we think we're all, you know, super advanced living in our little houses. And we're yeah. actually, you know, there's there's proof done that nobody wants to be too far ahead of their tribe or too far behind their tribe. And no one in the world wants to be alone in their tribe because that means something, you know, saber tooth tiger is going to eat you then. So <laughs> when these, you know, when these youth feel like they're alone in their tribe, yes. it's, a, it's a really dangerous emotional state to be in. Um, uh, so just before we've got a couple more questions before we close, even though I feel like we speak to you forever. Um, <laughs> what advice uh, would you give to a trans intersex or non-binary or even just anybody in the LGBTQI community um, if they were worried about getting any cancer screening or maybe haven't actually considered getting cancer screening. Yeah, yeah. well, you, well know, you know, I'm going to say that, it, you know, as we talk about like Audre Lorde's quote, that, you know, it's a radical act of self-love to take care of ourselves. And it, it's, it's kind of a radical act in the world to take care of ourselves. There's a lot of people in the world who want to pull us down. There's a lot of people who want to disrespect us. And I think the more that we can understand that investing in ourselves and in our strength and in our health is powerful and it's rebellious, and it's outrageous, and it's lovely, and it is something that, you know, means that I can stand, you know, I was suicidal as a youth, and I'm very much aware that I got through that, and that means I'm in the position of being able to just, you know, chop down a little bit more of a path for the people who follow me, and that's powerful, because it's not even just for me, I won't see all the gains I want to see in my life, but that means that maybe there's some youth, you know, born 30 years later yes. who saw a little bit of that path that I was able to carve out. And, and, and a piece of that is, you know, keeping ourselves strong in the face of that degradation, that, uh, you know, discrimination, 
that those endless slights and trials, all those microaggressions and the macroaggressions, I mean, you know, we know from, we know how discrimination, you know, hurts your soul. So every act that we take to uh, be stronger in the face of that and survive longer in the face of that. You know, when I did my um, dissertation on transgender health, one of the things that was very profound is that a lot of the people had outlived several cohorts of peers. Like literally that whole set of people from when I was young died. Then the next whole set died. And it really, you, I realized that like in the trans community for a lot of these people and many of them were lower income, they're more likely to be people of color and they were much less socially stable that like 50 was old. Wow. And that's, so, so basically everything we can do to invest in defying the odds and surviving is a very powerful and radical act. And, uh, and of course, a piece of that is not just getting your cancer screenings, but making sure you have that regular doctor. Like if you want a regular car mechanic for your car because you don't exactly remember when you're supposed to change the timing belt, why aren't you at least doing the same for your body? You know what I mean? Because I don't want to remember when the screenings are, but I do want to have that provider that I trust. And for us, a lot of times that means we've got to go to the provider like mine. She's like, I don't know how to treat a trans person. And so I had to go to the internet and find one of those protocols that are available online. You know, I didn't know what it meant, but I, I gave it to her. <laughs> she know what it, she knew what it meant. And then she did more training and we have a good, respectful, long-term relationship now. So investing in a relationship like that is, is really important for us. And, and again, it's radical. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm also, I'm a pharmacist as well. And I think healthcare professionals, you know, they have as part of your profession, you have to do continuous, uh, so CPD, continuous professional development. So there's that constant learning. And I can also um, advocate for patients, for people to go to their healthcare professional with, look, this is who I am. This is what I found out. And, and just because I'm all about reputable sources. So, um, you know, a peer review right. journal, all those things, you know, good impact factor, or just, you know, a, a, a good article. And, and share that with your healthcare professional. I think we have to also um, turn away from this attitude. I say this and, I, you know, I hope it's, it's uh, clear, but I think we also have to understand that knowledge is two-way and you get, as a healthcare professional, you get trained to understand sort of the science behind a condition or things like that. But you also, you, it's a continuous learning, you know, and you don't, most, in most cases, you're, you know, you might be learning about, I don't know, diabetes or something, but the, you're not diabetic. So right, you can't right. then say, oh, okay, this is what you need to do. So I really would actually advocate and urge people to do their own research as well, make sure it's from a reputable source and actually bring that information to your healthcare provider because they would appreciate it. A good healthcare provider would appreciate that two-way uh, communication about their about health. So, you know, I think that that would be good. So exactly what you did there where you research, as you said, yeah, I don't know, yeah. this is what I found. Have a look, right. <laughs> you know. You translate this gobbledygook. I don't feel like, I don't know what it's talking it's, about. It's a, good, it's a good approach. The um, thing that is, the thing that I do want to say you have to be cautious about with that is what if you do get cancer? That's a time when suddenly you have to see a bunch of providers in a row yeah. and you're also physically extremely depleted. Yeah. You're dealing with a life, potentially life-threatening condition. And you really have to go through a level of treatment that makes it hard to be that kind of advocate. Yes. And, and one of the challenges is you, you, you kind of say, okay, we'll have your family be it. But for a lot of us, we're estranged from our family. So, um, you know, that's a situation where, you know, if you love someone who's trans, um, think about how you can step up because that's when we really need those friends that we designate as family to step up and do some of the work for us because mm -hmm. we're really not in a position to be able to easily do it ourselves then. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, and before I forget, because I had, I was reading a little bit about your research and I wanted to actually just talk a little bit about your, I mean, we've talked about it in, already, but I just wanted to give you the opportunity <laughs> if you wanted to <laughs> I, uh, let you talk about it and <laughs> give you the opportunity to talk a little bit more about your network um, and how you formed it 
um, if 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 that would be um, if you could share that. And you know, some of like the key findings that you've had a key impact just because I you know I'd really like you to have that opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. I appreciate it. So um, like I said, I'm the executive director of the National LGBT Cancer Network, but you know, we will we will provide people with resources or information from wherever you are. Um, and our focus is really to educate our own communities on our increased cancer risks and disparities and why cancer screenings are important, and then train providers on how to do it. And then also advocate to make sure that mainstream cancer organizations are including outreach to our populations. Like at this point, if you don't have LGBTQI outreach, it's too easy and too simple and cheap too. It's not like we're renting, you know, magazine ads anymore. We're doing online stuff. So yeah, you can create a shareable that's LGBT spoke focused. If you don't have pride shareables, then what's your problem? Because I'm not a graphic designer and I make some of the ones for my agency. So, you know, you can, it's just easier. The bar is lower. Everybody should be including it these days. So that's where we really kind of focus. And in that area, we spend a lot of our time training providers. Um, we also spend a lot of our time talking with those kind of mainstream cancer professionals. Like, you know, we've been uh, talking a lot with the American Society of Clinical Oncologists and they just formed a task force to address what they're doing in sexual and gender minority health. And that task force is now going gangbusters and starting to change things. And that all came because, you know, we, we, uh, we'd seen a research study that basically said that of oncologists, 60% of them didn't feel ready to treat LGB people and 80% didn't feel ready to treat T people. And of course they didn't ask about I or Q, but so we, we can see there's a big education gap there. So, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to, we find there's a lot of good intention. So it's really kind of like helping people get the resources, you know, to follow through. And, you know, sometimes we go off and we do some things that we find particularly fun. Like we uh, actually, this year, we're putting up video billboards on Times Square about uh, cancer and tobacco health issues. Oh, and wow. like, you know, we had one aimed at the African-American trans community and, you know, one aimed specifically at bisexuals. So sometimes it's just things we really like and think are important to do. But we also create a lot of materials that if you are a member of our network are free for you to co-brand and put out. So like if you're a hospital, don't have any cancer materials, well, we've always already created some. You can put your logo on ours if you just sign up for the free membership, which you can get on our website which is www.cancer-network.org. That's something. Fantastic. And please, you have to, um, when you have the billboard. Um, I'll send you the YouTube link. Please, please. Yes, 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 yes I know. Fun. They're fun to watch. <laughs> and, and, you know, you've heard it there. Like the information is there. There's a, a body of resources. Um, so, you know, people need to take, uh, take that up. Uh, so we've come to the end. I'm really sad. I I could sit here and talk to you forever. I've just run out of questions now. But I, <laughs> I have I run out of the questions I had to talk about today. But I have more. <laughs> that's all, but, that's uh, all fine. We all take information in lumps, right? We don't yes. want to, you know, just you get one lump at a time. Digest that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're going to get an email from me like a few days later. Early <laughs> Part two. Part two. Yes. Because <laughs> there's a lot, and and this conversation has um highlighted to me and you know there are probably people who were aware of these things but I think we've in this discussion we've um perhaps also given some food for thought on yeah, yeah. actions next steps I'm always very action focused you know people listen to the podcast many times access the resource I'm going to put the link to um the network's website as well um and I say this for listeners globally because you know this is one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on here because you're doing some amazing work in America that's translated translatable across the world um yeah. for those who would be willing and open to to do that so so um you know thank you for the work that you're doing um so before we go and uh before we end I'm, I'm emotional <laughs> Um, could you, um, I don't know, what, could you just leave us with uh, some key messages, you know, just key take-home messages? Yeah, let me, yeah, let, let me break it down if you're one of three different groups of people. First of all, if you're anybody who loves a queer person or cares about a queer person or thinks that it's important to care about queer people, then you have an amazing opportunity whenever you interact with the healthcare system to ask, what about us? You know, like I said at the beginning, I keep asking, what about us? Well, it doesn't, you don't have to be queer to say that. 
So, you know, you can be someone going to your doctor and saying to your doctor, hey, why don't you ask whether someone's LGBTQI? And that will, why don't you have anything that's LGBTQI welcoming in your waiting room? Hey, do you include sexual orientation and gender identity in your non-discrimination statement? Because I don't see it here, you know? Or you can just point out, hey, if I was a queer person, I wouldn't see anything that would tell me this was welcoming. Because most of the time, Again, providers are well-meaning and they're like, oh, you're right. I hadn't thought about it that way. Let's fix it, right? So that's if you love someone or care or think that people are important. If you are queer yourself, then I think really the, the message is really kind of keep your own oxygen mask on first. And for a lot of people, that might be, you know, take more time to meditate, um, take more time to do that self-care. Uh, you know, start where you are and start building your power. And a lot of that is probably also fight off social isolation. You know, find those people that are reaching out to you. They may not be chosen family, but try and figure out who your family are and invest in building people into family if you don't have your chosen family around. So, you know, start building your strength. And I hope that a part of that arc of building your strength is going to be making sure all your health stuff is check, check, check. If it, that it's that it's heading in a good direction. It doesn't matter where you start. I mean, you can you can certainly be in a wheelchair. You can have a terminal illness, anything like that. But that every day you're doing something to invest in your health, one way or another, in, including things like, hey, if you're smoking, can you look into the cessation programs today? See what they're like. Don't don't quit today. Don't think you know. But one step at a time. What resources are there? So you know, if we can just invest in our health, and that's our strength every day. That's what I'd ask for the queer people, including, of course, our cancer screenings. And then if you're a healthcare provider, take that journey, look at your, your uh, hospital, your office, whatever it is, your clinic from our eyes and see what we see. If we don't see anything showing us that you're welcoming, then there's a huge history of discrimination and we have no way of telling you apart from the bigots. So please, stand apart from the history of bigotry so we can see it's safe. Thank you so much, Scout, for, for those words. And thank you so much for your time. Um, those are powerful messages to take home. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I appreciate it being here. You've been listening to the Monday Science Podcast, a weekly show bringing you the latest research and news in science, technology, medicine and health we hope you've gotten some useful and thought-provoking info from the show and we hope you had fun along the way we know we did we'll be back soon but in the meantime hook up with us on our website at www.mondayscience shoot us an email at info at mondayscience Find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Monday Science and access episode summaries at mondayscience.medium.com. See you next week on the Monday Science Podcast.